In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul coined a phrase that flooded my mind as I was preparing this message on Revelation chapter 5. Paul wrote, so we do not lose heart, for though our outer self is wasting away, our, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And in that passage, Paul provides us with a glimpse of what kept him from losing heart through those long, cold nights in prison, when his body ached upon the stone floor from the beatings that he took, and his back screamed as the wounds laid open by the lashes that he had received were sticking to his blood-stained shirt. What kept him from losing heart when he was shipwrecked and adrift at sea? Or when his stomach ached and gnawed within him from deprivation, or when he spent the night shivering in the wilderness from exposure? What kept him from losing heart when he was hated and persecuted and slandered and falsely accused by his enemies and abandoned by his closest friends? How did he not give in to despair, just give up and go home? He says that though His outer self was wasting away. I mean, how could it not? His body was beaten. Though his outer body was wasting away, he says his inner self, that is his spirit, was being renewed day by day. And I want to know how. How was his spirit being renewed in the midst of such tremendous pain and the the constant deterioration of his body? How was it that he was being daily renewed in his soul such that he could withstand unimaginable sufferings for the sake of Christ? Because whatever he had, I want. I need it. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says that his light Momentary afflictions. Let me tell you what he means by light momentary afflictions. You can read about these light momentary afflictions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And you will read of innumerable imprisonments, countless tortures, some to the very point of death, a stoning, multiple shipwrecks, not counting the shipwreck recorded in Acts 26... Danger, deprivation, desertion by his friends, exposure, and more. Light momentary afflictions. He says that all of those sufferings were counted as nothing in comparison with some eternal weight of glory, which he says is unseen. That is, it is apprehended by faith. You can't see it or taste it or touch it. You just have to believe it. The image in Paul's mind is of 
a balance scale. On one side of the scale, he placed all of his tremendous physical and suffering and emotional heartache. And on the other side is what Paul simply calls glory. And this eternal, unseen glory apprehended by faith was so weighty in Paul's soul, so heavy that the afflictions on the opposite side appeared but momentary and light by contrast. So what is this weight of glory that is so heavy, so substantial, so valuable as to render all of his and our present sufferings as nothing in comparison? Well, Paul doesn't leave us wondering if we just look at the context in which he made that statement in 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, we see what the weight of glory is. For Paul, it was the truth of the gospel. It was the good news of reconciliation with God through Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. It was the hope of resurrection with Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 14 and 5, 1-5 as well as the sobering reality of a coming judgment from Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 10-11. These gospel truths and more were the anchor of Paul's soul and the weight of glory that he placed on the scales opposite all of his sufferings in life. The book of Revelation was written to a suffering people. It was written to encourage us and them and all of the saints suffering in these last days to encourage us to persevere in the midst of afflictions and trials and tribulations and temptations. It was written, in other words, that we, like Paul, would not lose heart. But to endure affliction and tribulation, indeed even to rejoice in our sufferings as the Bible commands us to do, Romans 5, James 1, 1 Peter 1, requires that we have laid hold of what Paul called the eternal weight of glory. You will not endure through the sufferings and the tribulations and the temptations of this life unless you have the weight of glory in your scales. We need some heavy, glorious, substantial reality, some truth to anchor our souls to send all of the afflictions and sufferings and heartaches and tragedies and grief up because they are so weighed down by the glory on the other side. That's what we have in Revelation 4 and 5. We have heavy truth, glorious truth. We have weight for our souls. We have eternal truth in Revelation 4 and 5 of such incomparable weight and substance that it can and will sustain the saints through every trial and tribulation and temptation. It can keep us from losing heart, and it can renew our souls day by day, though our outer selves are wasting away. So when we turn to Revelation 5, we're opening up to foundational, worldview-altering truth. Saving truth. Heavy truth. 
And what Paul said was unseen, this eternal weight of glory that is unseen, is in Revelation 5 made visible to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. This is substance for your soul. Weight. Reality. Making everything else in your life seem like wisps of vapor and puffs of smoke by comparison. So this morning I invite you back into the heavenly throne room where the thrice holy one, the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and is to come is clothed in light and seated upon his throne where the four living creatures surround him and are declaring his glory and the 24 elders are laying prostrate before him in worship. And I want to point out to you five heavy, weighty, glorious truths that you must place upon the balance of your life if you, like Paul and like all of the saints, are to persevere through the trials and tribulations and not lose heart. Five truths. And by the way, if some of these truths sound a little familiar if you're a Together for the Gospel fan, there's a reason for that. About four years ago at the 2012 Together for the Gospel Conference, your International Mission Board President, David Platt, preached on Revelation chapter 5, and that sermon had a profound impact upon me. It was entitled, Divine Sovereignty, the Fuel of Death-Defying Missions. And through Revelation chapter 5, he challenged about 8,000 pastors in the room to send their people out to die for the sake of Christ on the basis of this chapter. There has to be something heavy and substantial in this chapter if pastors are going to look out at their people and call them to die. And so I couldn't improve on a couple of his points, and so I just borrowed them. I invite you to go onto the website, listen to the whole thing. Truth number one. God holds the detailed destiny of the world in his hand. God holds the detailed destiny of the world in the palm of his right hand. Revelation 5.1 Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. If you're reading in the King James Version, your Bible is going to say book instead of scroll. The Greek word there is biblion, which refers to a small book or to a scroll, depending on the context. In the Gospels, it almost universally refers to a scroll, and here it may refer to a book. It may refer to a bound codex, that is, pages that are laid flat, one on top of the other, bound with a spine. But because it has writing both within and on the back, it says, and then is sealed with seven seals, I think it's probably best To picture this as a scroll with writing both on both sides of the paper that is then rolled towards the center and is sealed seven times to prevent anyone from opening the scroll and reading its contents. Likewise, it is best to picture this scroll as resting upon the palm of the right hand of him who sits on the throne rather than as being clenched in his closed fist. So what is this scroll and what does it contain. Well, the background of this image comes, as does much of the book of Revelation, from the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. In Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 3, 
which is the passage detailing Ezekiel's call to the prophetic ministry, Ezekiel's told to open his mouth and to eat what is given him. Ezekiel 2, verse 9, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Ezekiel then ate the scroll, and it tasted sweet as honey. Then with the words of God in his mouth, he went out and he prophesied salvation and judgment to the people of Israel. By the way, the Apostle John will also eat a scroll later in Revelation chapter 10. And it likewise will taste sweet as honey on his lips, but then it will turn bitter inside of his stomach as John comes to us as a prophet of God and gives us a message of salvation and judgment, of mercy and mourning, of life and lamentation. Daniel, likewise, having been shown all of the visions of the, of the book of Daniel, is then told in Daniel chapter 12 to take what he has seen and to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Well, now here in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, which deals with the time of the end, the Lamb is about to open the scroll that was shut up and sealed. And when the Lamb begins to break the seals, judgment is unleashed from heaven upon the inhabitants of the earth. Woes and lamentations are pronounced. Beasts rise up out of the sea and out of the earth. Bowls of wrath are poured out. Babylon falls. Christ returns. The dragon is defeated. The dead are raised and judged. And the saints who are redeemed inherit the everlasting kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. So we take all of this information together and we know what the scroll is, which is in the palm of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. The scroll contains the destiny of the world. It is the detailed and predestined record of the latter days which were inaugurated when the lamb was slaughtered and raised. The detailed and predestined record of the latter days written before any of them had as yet come to be. It records the end of all things, the final defeat and judgment of all evil, the damnation of the wicked, the salvation of the faithful, the new creation, and all of the means associated with that end. It is detailed and it is comprehensive symbolized in the fact that it is written on both the front and the back, within and without, every inch of this scroll being filled with sacred script. The rise and the fall of nations, the succession of kings, the election of presidents, the outcome of wars, natural disasters, plagues, famines, the movements of Satan and the forces of evil, all of it, all of it unfolds according to God's sovereign will. And lest you think that perhaps God's sovereignty extends only to, you know, the the broad strokes of human history, you know, to the macro events, as if God only interferes in the course of history at the crucial moments to ensure that everything just sort of works out in the end. Let me do my best in just a moment to disabuse you of that erroneous and harmful notion. 
In the Bible, God reveals his sovereignty to be utterly, absolutely, and inviolably comprehensive. Every detail of every aspect of his creation is written in the scroll. I want to take you on just a little survey of sovereignty. Just follow along. The wind blows, the rains fall, the lightning flashes, the thunder rumbles, the waves churn at the command of their creator, Psalm 135, 6 and 7. The free decisions of willful men are ordained and governed by the sovereign will of God, Genesis 20, verse 6, Proverbs 16, 9, 19, 21, 21, 1. The, the heart of the king It's like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it however he will. Seemingly random events, like the casting of lots, fall according to his eternal counsel, Proverbs 16.33. The evil desires of wicked men fulfill the good purpose of God, Genesis 50.20. When Joseph looks at his brothers and says, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The life and the death of even the smallest and insignificant of creatures is determined by God's sovereign hand. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them falls apart from the will of my Father? Matthew 6, 26 and 10, 29. Every detail of your life down to the very hairs of your head, are foreordained, predestined, and numbered, and known to your sovereign God. Matthew 10, 30-31. Truly, our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115, 3. Either God holds the detailed destiny of the world and all that is in it, including the detailed destinies of individual men and women, including your destiny in the palm of his right hand, such that all things are predestined according to the counsel of him who works out all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. Or you can have absolutely no confidence whatsoever that God will cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You cannot have it both ways. If God does not ordain and order all things, He cannot cause all things to work together for your good. If God does not hold the detailed, comprehensive destiny of the world in the palm of His right hand, then Some things just happen. And there's no purpose in it whatsoever. We are just the victims of tragic accidents of fate. It is only if God holds the detailed destiny of the world in the palm of his right hand such that, in the words of the Westminster Confession, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. It is only then that you can believe that your sufferings, your afflictions, your trials have any purpose whatsoever. 
Because if the scroll is not in his right hand, and if your destiny, your life is not in that scroll, then maybe some things for you, they just happen and they have no purpose. It is to the degree that you believe that God holds the detailed destiny of the world. Your detailed destiny in the palm of his right hand. That is the degree to which you will be able to say that all of the struggle and the strife in your life are but momentary light afflictions. Which are planned, predestined, and purposed by God to produce for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If the detailed destiny of the world is not in the palm of God's right hand, you can't speak with the Apostle Paul about your light and momentary afflictions. They will drown you. So I invite you, Revelation 5.1 invites you to put the heavy, glorious truth of divine sovereignty in the balance of your life so that you will not lose heart. John's writing to churches that are suffering and he says, look, look look at what is in his right hand. Emperors rise and emperors fall. City officials put some of your order to death. They take away your possessions. They take away your children. You're being slandered all day long. You're a sheep to be slaughtered. Is there any purpose in all of this? Look, it's in the palm of his right hand. So I invite you this morning to look and don't lose heart. The second truth in this passage is that there is no hope for the world apart from Christ. See, immediately upon seeing the scroll in the palm of the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the Apostle John is confronted with a devastating problem. He says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why? Why why does John weep? John weeps because so long as the scroll remains unopened, the destiny of the world remains unfulfilled. See, the content of that scroll, which as we will see as the chapters of Revelation unfold, contain Christ's triumph over evil, the salvation of his people, the new creation. None of it can be executed unless the seals are broken and the scroll is read. Think of it like a legal will. Until the will is unsealed and read, its contents cannot be executed and the inheritance cannot be received. Unless the seals are broken and the scroll is opened, the dragon will be victorious in his plan to damn all of you. Sin and death will reign in your mortal bodies. The fall of man will be forever and the curse will be permanent and there will be nothing left to sing about but everlasting judgment. 
There will be no redemption. There will be no salvation. There will be no reconciliation. There will be no resurrection to everlasting life. There will be no return to the garden and to the presence of Him who is joy forevermore. Do you feel what is at stake here in Revelation 5? John's salvation, your salvation, my salvation is sealed up in that scroll. And there is no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who is found worthy to break the seals, open the scroll, and execute God's redemptive plan. Every person on earth, if this scroll is not opened, every person on earth would live and die with no other hope but to spend an eternity in hell, separated from God and underneath His fierce wrath. Would you not weep? Do you not tremble at the thought even now? There is nothing but hell unless the scroll is opened. Thomas Watson, 17th century English Puritan, wrote this. Thus it is in hell that they would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall always be dying, but never dead. The spoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? This word ever breaks the heart. And that's why John wept. Because in that moment, he felt utterly hopeless. He felt as hopeless as some two billion people across the globe who are unreached with no access to the gospel whatsoever. And they would weep too if they knew something of the immense danger that they face as they blithely and blindly walk through this life like they're walking down railroad tracks as a veritable freight train of divine judgment bears down upon it and they can't see it and they can't hear it. And the same is true of your neighbor, of your co-worker, of your child, of your spouse, of your friend. Take a moment and with John just feel the hopelessness that exists in the heart of one apart from Christ. And be stirred to do something about it. Paul wrote, therefore I endure everything. And we read something of the everything that he endured. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2.10 So along with the weight of God's divine sovereignty, I invite you to put the weight of our utter hopelessness apart from Christ in the balance of your life. And then I invite you to go and to suffer for the sake of the elect that they might have hope. Because there is hope. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. There is one who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to execute the destiny of the world. The redemption of an innumerable multitude and the renewal of all creation. One of the 24 elders delivers the good news to John of a lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David who has conquered and is therefore worthy to open the scroll. Shortly before the patriarch Jacob's death... He, he brought all of his sons together and he prophesied over the 12 sons and therefore over the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he came to Judah, his thirdborn, the Spirit of the Lord put a promise in his mouth that from the tribe of Judah would come a lion who would conquer all of his enemies and who would rule over all the peoples. Genesis 49. Centuries later, the prophet Isaiah told of a Messiah to come, a spirit-anointed king who would arise from David's line to conquer all of his enemies, to bring salvation and peace to Zion, and to cover the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas, Isaiah 11. Yes, surely this is the one... In heaven and on earth and under the earth. If there's anyone worthy to open this scroll. Surely it is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The king from David's line. Right? You can feel the hope arising in John's heart. You can feel the drama of the moment. As John looks eagerly towards the throne. To see the lion go to take the scroll. And to get a glimpse of this warrior like king. And slowly the 24 elders begin to part. And then the four living creatures. And there standing before the throne stands. A lamb. Slaughtered. Yet standing. Dead, yet alive. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And you can almost hear in Revelation 5 the dots connecting in John's brain. This is how the Messiah conquers so as to take the scroll and to break its seals and to unfold the destiny of the world. He conquers by dying. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the hope of the world hinges upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one else is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. None but Christ who conquered sin and death and hell by being slaughtered as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. He conquered sin by taking our sins upon himself and absorbing in himself the wrath of God due to us. He conquered death by dying and by rising again from the grave. 
He conquered hell by paying the full price for our sin such that hell has no more claim over those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And this slaughtered yet standing Lamb with seven horns signifying His perfect power and seven eyes signifying His perfect knowledge who has at His command the seven spirits of God which are the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth to accomplish His will and execute the destiny of the world. He walks right up to the throne and He takes the scroll from the right hand of God. Like he owns the place. Is there any clearer indication of the sovereign divinity of Jesus Christ than this? That he alone is worthy to take the scroll to open its seals and to execute God's sovereign will throughout all the earth. And then... To stand right next to him who sits on the throne and have the living creatures, the elders, thousands upon thousands of angels, and indeed all of creation bow down and worship him. He's worthy. He's worthy because he is conquered and he is conquered because he was slaughtered and rose again. And the result of the lamb's slaughter is the purchase of a particular yet plentiful people. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This astonishing ascendancy of Christ is so glorious and so wonderful to behold that the four living creatures and the 24 elders who a moment ago were fallen down on their faces before the throne in worship of the of of God, now fall down before the Lamb and worship Him. And that each of the 24 elders holds a harp and golden bowls of incense once again points, maybe, to their function as heavenly angelic priests in the heavenly temple of God, presenting incense before the Lord, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song in verses 9 through 10, which proclaim the reason why the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals and execute God's will. He is worthy, they say, because he was slaughtered and ransomed for God a particular yet plentiful people, and he has made them to be a kingdom of priests, and they shall reign upon a renewed earth. That word ransom means to purchase or to redeem. From what or from whom did Jesus purchase the saints? A common answer is that he purchased them from Satan. The whole ransom to the devil theory of the atonement. But our sin did not place us in debt to Satan. It placed us in debt to God. 
to his justice, to his judgment, and to his wrath. It was God and not Satan who was offended when we, his image bearers, turned away from him, defaced his image before all of creation with our sin, and trampled upon his glory. It was God's honor that was offended in the fall of man. And it is God's honor that is offended when we transgress his commands. Our debt was to God. And therefore the wages of our sin, which is death, must be paid to him. So the biblical answer is that Christ purchased us from God. That is from God's judgment and wrath. So by his blood poured out in his slaughter upon the cross, Jesus purchased a people from God and for God. In other words, it was the love of God which sent the Son of God to save the people of God from the wrath of God. That's the gospel in about four phrases. The love of God sent the Son of God to save the people of God from the wrath of God. And who was purchased? The living creatures and the elders answer. People from, that is, out of every tribe and language and people and nation. Later in Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8, we will find that there is another book. It's called the book of life of the lamb that was slain. And we will find that in this book are names, names which were written before the foundation of the earth. Guess whose names are in that book? Those whom Christ purchased in Revelation 5.9. Those who were to be purchased by the Lamb who was slain. The book of life is the book of the elect, the book of the people whom God chose from before the foundation of the world and sent his son to infallibly purchase. The living creatures and the 24 elders are praising the lamb for the purchase of a particular people. Listen to me, beloved. Christ did not die for a nameless, faceless mass of people. He died for individuals. He died for you. Your name was written in the book and is written on his hands. It's a particular love. And there are times when you need to feel particularly loved. They are a particular people, and yet they are a plentiful people. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees this group as a multitude that no man can number. And they are gloriously diverse. They come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation upon the earth. And it is this particular, plentiful, gloriously diverse People for whom Christ died that he might redeem them and transform them and with them reign over a new heaven and a new earth. The promise that was given to Israel in Exodus 19.6 that they would be to God a kingdom 
of priests is fulfilled evidently in Christ's blood-bought church. The Lamb was slain to purchase us from God's wrath for God's mercy in order to make us a kingdom and priest to our God and we will reign in glory forever with Him upon a renewed and glorified earth. That's weighty truth. The last weighty truth that I want to draw out of this passage is that the end of all things is the praise of the glory of God. Divine sovereignty permeates every verse of this vision of Revelation 4 and 5. We saw in Revelation 4, 11 that God created all things by His will. All things existed and were created by Him. And in Revelation 5, 1, the very next verse, we saw that God will bring all created things to their appointed end. And now at the end of Revelation chapter 5, we see just a glimpse of what that end is. The end for which God created the world and all that is in it is the praise of His glory. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Not just the holy angels, all creation. Not just the redeemed saints, All creatures in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them will give glory to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb that was slain. Which can only mean that some creatures, the holy angels and the redeemed saints, will delight on that day to bow before the throne and to sing to the praise of His glory, while other creatures, wicked men and unholy fallen angels whom we call demons, will fall before the throne and confess that all blessing and honor and glory and might belong not to the dragon and not to the beast and not to the kings of the earth, but to God who sits upon the throne and to Jesus Christ who is the slain yet standing lamb who is Lord over all. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be glory. Your eternal destiny rides upon whether or not you delight in this truth. Look up here. Your eternal destiny rides upon whether or not your heart rejoices in Revelation 5.13. If your soul does not rejoice to worship God and the Lamb now, you will not be happy on the day when Revelation 5.13 happens. 
hands. You will be miserable, miserable, and your misery will never end as you spend an eternity raging and striving against the purpose for which you were created as you are forced always to acknowledge the sovereign glory of the God whom you despise. Worship is not a light matter. It's the end for which the world was created. But if your joy is to worship Him now, then your joy will only increase eternally. And this is how you may know. Perhaps you were here just a moment ago and you're saying, how can I know if I'm in the book? If there's a book and the names are in the book from before the foundations of the earth, how can I know if I'm in the book? Well, you can't look into it because as we will find out, the book is closed and it is sealed until it is called forth and opened in Revelation 20, 12. So you're not going to know by looking in the book. So how do you know if you're in the book? How do you know if you're in Revelation 5, 9? You look at Revelation 5.13 and you ask, does my soul rejoice in the worship of God and of the Lamb? Does it join in with the four living creatures with the yes and amen? All glory in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth belongs to Him. And if your heart delights in that truth, you're in the book. I don't profess to know all that eternity holds for the redeemed and all that God has in store for those who love Him, but I know this, worship will be at the center of it. And only those who love worship now will love it then. This is the end for which the world was created, beloved. This is the end for which you were created. To worship Him who sits upon the throne and the Lamb that was slain. And if that thought makes you happy now, you're going to be happy forever.